Hello and welcome to the inaugural podcast presented by Toronto Crime Tours. We are Bob and Phil and we each served over 30 years policing the streets of Toronto. We are the only crime tour in Canada to be hosted by retired detectives. Our primary business is presenting walking tours through different parts of the city. As retired detectives, we have an affinity for how our great city has evolved, be it from shocking events like the Boyd Gang, serial killer Bruce MacArthur, to something more quirky like prohibition laws or today's ongoing debate over public consumption of alcohol in, in city parks. In this podcast, we draw from each of our tours, which have 15 unique stories per tour. They're the downtown tour, West End, and East End tour. And from these 45 stories, we would like to present five bizarre crimes from Toronto's rich history of the tragic, the heartbreaking, and the quirky. Our first stop is number 13 in the West End tour. And this is the case of Igor Kank, the most prolific bike thief in Canadian history. This is where we stand at the south end of Trinity Bellwoods Park in the heart of West Queen West. This was a nondescript bike shop belonging to a man later known as the most infamous and prolific bike thief in Canada. Igor Kank came to Canada from his native Slovenia in 1988 at age 29. He was first busted in 1993 when police seized 140 bikes, but he made a real splash on the headlines in July of 2008 when police discovered several warehouses and garages he was renting full of stolen bikes. Police seized 2,865 bikes. Investigation revealed that Kank was doing theft to order for specific bikes. He faced a litany of charges and served 16 months in the Don jail. On a positive note, the bikes that were unable to be returned to their owners ended up in needy communities, such as the Cabbage Town Youth Centre and several native communities in the northern parts of Ontario. He was recently the subject of a TVO documentary and is now apparently living in Switzerland. So it begs the question, how many stolen bikes does one guy need? This has to be a case of obsessive compulsive disorder. I agree, 2000 bikes, how many, uh, how many bikes can you process in a day? Okay, well, speaking of bikes, uh, our second uh, story um, is stop number 11 from the downtown tour. And this is the case of the boy on the bike, Canada's youngest serial killer. This is where we're standing at the youth courthouse at 311 Jarvis Street. We discuss the horrifying case of Peter Woodcock, Canada's youngest serial killer, who murdered three young children by the age of 17. It's a rather involved case, given that it involves three murders, but we would like to discuss one particularly troubling part of the investigation. In September 1956, the first victim, a seven-year-old boy, was found strangled to death at the c &E grounds. A witness reports seeing a teenage boy leaving the c &E on a bicycle the night of the crime. Police, for some reason, focused on a runaway youth as being a likely suspect. That was bad luck for 14-year-old Ron Moffat, who had run away from home to escape punishment for playing hooky from school. His parents were heavy drinkers and were known to beat Moffat for discipline. His parents reported Moffat as missing, although he was actually just hiding out and sleeping under the stairs of his apartment building. Going through missing youth reports, detectives learned that Moffat had worked that summer at the CNE, the Canadian National Exhibition. Detectives located Moffat at school and never told his parents that he had been located. He was interviewed about working at the X. During the interview, they threw out leading questions about the child's murder to the frightened, scared boy. 
They walked him through the confession, supplying the correct information when he gave the wrong answer. They took him straight to the crime scene. He had no, no clue where it was and agreed to whatever the detectives suggested to him about the crime. Moffat later said that his admission of guilt was all nonsense, the product of a very scared boy pushed into making a false confession. He was charged with the seven-year-old's murder and held in juvenile detention. A second murder of a young boy happens the following month in Cabbage Town, in Toronto's Lower East End. The victim is last seen being given a bicycle ride to Cherry Beach on Lake Ontario. He strangled to death. Police don't make a connection about the boy on the bike, thinking there were two separate killers. At his trial in December 1956, despite very little evidence to connect Moffat to the scene and a strong alibi confirmed by witnesses, Moffat is found guilty largely based on his uh, coerced confession. As a juvenile delinquent, he enters a psychiatric facility instead of a prison. January of 1957, the third victim, a four-year-old girl, is found strangled to death in the Don Valley Ravine. Peter Woodcock comes on the radar in this investigation. Detectives find him at school. He confesses immediately. In May 1957, Moffat has a new trial. Woodcock takes the stand and calmly confesses to killing the young boy at the CNE grounds, setting Moffat free. Millette, unfortunately, is from a poor family, so they cannot afford to hire a lawyer to seek compensation from the police. You know, Bob and I are both parents and simply cannot imagine detectives interviewing a 14-year-old child for a murder investigation. I can assure our listeners, since both Bob and I uh, both worked youth crimes at different points through our careers, nowadays we can't ask your child about a broken window without jumping through many hoops, primarily obtaining permission from a parent. Very true. We now talk about the next stop. It's stop number eight on our West End tour. It's Toronto Western Hospital, Susan Ellis, when nurses turn bad. Stop eight, as I said, is our West End tour is at Toronto Western Hospital, where we talk about two alarming cases of when a nurse turned bad. The second case is Elizabeth uh, Wetlaufer, who confessed to killing eight patients at a senior's care home in 2016, making her Canada's, Canada's worst female serial killer. The earlier case we will look into here involved the hospital for sick children. In 1981, over a two month period, there were 20 infant deaths in the cardiac unit, an alarming spike from the average one per week to five. A coroner found a fatal lethal of digoxin in one of the babies. Next week, another baby was found to have 13 times the normal concentration of digoxin. A police investigation began, which led to nurse Susan Nellis being charged with four counts of murder. After her arrest, the suspicious death stopped. The charges were dropped after the preliminary hearing, which is a test of the evidence to determine if there is enough merit to proceed to trial. Obviously in this case, there wasn't. Later, a 15 month long uh, Royal Commission of Inquiry was held where some doubt was cast over the team leader, Phyllis Trainer, who strangely resigned her post after the inquiry. It ruled that in a nine month period, 32 babies had died in Ward 4A a 625% increase over any other nine-month period. Only one of the four nurse teams had been on shift for all deaths, and they always occurred on the midnight shift. Doubt was cast over Nellis's guilt when it was learned she wasn't on shift for one of the deaths. The case at the time would have been Toronto's worst serial killer, but in 1993, a doctor reported that the testing procedure in 1981 
was subject to false readings. The question remains, were any babies ever murdered? So the 1993 report revealed that testing procedures uh, were very unreliable. That changes the optics of this entire case. It raises the question, was, was it a crime or was it just an anomaly of a spike in infant deaths? And the answer will never be known as there is no longer any forensic evidence remaining for this case. Exactly, exactly. Our next stop is stop number eight, downtown. The theme, using victim as baits. Uh, it's a Jane Doe balcony rapist situation. In August 1986, a woman only ever identified as Jane Doe was raped by an offender known as the balcony rapist. She was his fifth victim. Upon reporting the crime, she was told by the detectives that they were aware of the balcony rapist, but they didn't want, uh, they didn't warn the public so as not to scare him off. His MO or method of operation was to scale balconies and enter victims' apartments through locked doors or windows. Outraged, Jane Doe stated that she would warn women if the police would not, would not. She was threatened with arrest if she interfered with an active investigation. Defiant, and with the help of some women's rights groups, they put up posters warning of the balcony rapist and his composite sketch. Within 24 hours, a parole officer recognized the drawing as one of his clients who was on spousal abuse charges. He served 20 years in prison. At a civil trial in 1991, she successfully won the right to sue the police for using her as bait. The first time a citizen could sue the police for a poor investigation. We can assure our listeners that many, many things have improved uh, since this case. In fact, the sexual assault investigative training uh, has been vetted by the Jane Doe Coalition. As we mentioned for the questioning of a youth earlier, a police officer in 2021 would not dare threaten or even imply that a sexual assault victim would be arrested. It just does not happen. And Phil, you have sexual assault squad experience and the primary thing is notifying the public of any potential risk. Absolutely, that is one of the major things we do as soon as we become aware of, uh, of a sex offender. Okay, well, our fifth and final uh, story here is stop number four from our East End tour. And it has to deal with the Sunday law. So Riverdale Park in the East End of Toronto has a very large uh, sloped hill from Broadview Avenue that runs down into the Don Valley Ravine. Now picture any young family in that area in 1906. There were no toboggans zooming down this hill because it was illegal. That's right, the Lord's Day Act was a federal act which restricted many things on Sunday, notably things like horse racing, movie going, and shopping. In fact, the Eaton store downtown had to put curtains on their windows to, on their window displays to discourage window shopping. It was meant to force families to be together and to go to church. And with Toronto being a very stoic, prudish city at the time, Toronto the good. Sunday closure laws were still in the books when myself and Bob started policing in 1987. It remained a provincial offense here until 1992. It took the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to eventually remove this outdated law, ruling it infringed on the freedom to practice religion. Well, there are our five bizarre stories from Toronto's history. And this concludes our podcast. If you find yourself in Toronto, be sure to join us for a Toronto crime tour. 
Bookings can be done through www.torontocrimetours.com. We hope to be back with another podcast in the very near future, and we thank you for listening.